The following is a presentation of the Six Arrows Radio Network. MTCRadio.com presents Ham Radio 360, the podcast, with your host, Kale Nelson, K4CDN. Hey, hey, welcome back in. It's Kale, K4CDN. Thank you so much for stopping by. We've got a great show for you this time through on Ham Radio 360 podcast. And uh, I just want to go ahead and tell you up front, it's a really interesting show. It's one I've been working on trying to find a solution for for quite some time. And <laughs> it's one of those things where you have the answer staring you straight in the face, but you just can't see, you know, the forest for the trees kind of a thing. We're going to be joined here in just a few minutes with Ed Fong. You guys may recognize him. We talk about his antennas all the time. His call is Whiskey Bravo 6, India, Quebec, November. And Ed's just a dynamite guy from the Baynet Group. Uh, big shout out to all of my friends in the Baynet. Man, you talk about some killer guys. Maybe not literally, but they're just awesome, awesome folks out there. Thank you for all your support you've given the show here. Ed's got a great time, uh, an interview time here with us coming up where we talk about near vertical instant Skywave as well as some of his antenna designs and a new antenna that he's bringing to market. Really exciting show, and uh, don't be afraid. This is not going to be over your head. This is Kale's level of understanding here. So it's going to be great. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in just a sec. It's Christmas time. Happy New Year, almost. I actually caught myself telling someone Happy New Year the other day. It was really kind of a weird, why did I say that? You know, as you're walking away, why did I, I don't really know why I said it, but I can tell you this, it is almost Christmas time, which means the deals are happening at Main Trading Company down in Paris, Texas, mtcradio.com, coming off an incredible Black Friday weekend with sale prices that well, I couldn't believe, and, and I know a lot of people couldn't believe, but, but <laughs> they may not have believed it, but they were getting the deals themselves. I'm telling you, man, the price of the ICOM IC7300 was insane. They had ID51s way down there. And I'm telling you, if you need gear, I tell you this every week, please stop for just a second and listen to me because I know you're shopping other places. Call Main Trading Company. Tell Richard you heard about him here on the Ham Radio 360 podcast. He will give you the best deal possible on what you're looking for for your icom gear needs okay you need icom you need main trading company i promise you you'll get the best deal all you have to do is call him okay mtcradio.com all the contact information there let them know kill sent you to get the best deals on amateur radio gear from icom So, Ed, thank you, and welcome into Ham Radio 360 Podcast. Uh, I've been a fan of your antennas for quite a long time and really appreciate this opportunity to have you here on the program to uh, discuss all things antenna. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, it's uh, it's Ed Fong. His call, again, is WB6IQN, and Ed is a um, an educator as well as a manufacturer, if you will. And we're going to talk to Ed today about near-vertical incident skywave to begin with. Because, Ed, we get a lot of questions here on the show, and I see them all over the Internet. People are always asking, what is near-vertical instant sky wave? I under, kind of understand how it works, or, or I can make it work, but what, what's the guts behind near-vertical incident sky wave? Okay, so the basic concept is you know, in a regular in shortwave antenna, 40 meters, 20 meters, um, typically we want to go as far as we can. So there you, you want to radiate horizontally, Horizontally, you imagine if you're at a cliff and the ocean's there. If you want to go far distance, you want to have your antenna not on the ground but high up. 
-hmm. high up this way. Your wave goes at a low angle radiation, hits the ionosphere at a very low, what we call low angle, mm -hmm. and then it reflects back. Well, by the time it reflects back, you're perhaps hundreds, thousands of miles out, uh, 20 meters, and you can go six, 7,000 miles to work the X. Mm -hmm. But in Nivis, it's a little bit different. The goal, you know, you would think, well, what's the goal when you want to not work far? Or some people would say, well, if I can talk 1,000 miles away, <laughs> certainly I could talk 50 miles away. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not actually true. Not actually true. Because you skip over it. You, you know, imagine a flashlight, right? It's, it's like a flashlight in a, with a reflector. It, oh, mirror. Let's say a flashlight. And you're looking at the mirror right in the bathroom or something. If you shine the flashlight at an angle, the reflection goes off at an angle. And if you'd imagine... The closer you get to the glass, the smaller angle you get, that reflection goes way off. But if you hit it at right at 90 degrees and you're standing right in front of it, you hit it at 90 degrees, it comes right back at you. Mm -hmm. It comes right back at you. And if you bend the flashlight a little bit, maybe 10 degrees, it'll go off and reflect back 10, degree, you know, 10 degrees again the other way. Right. And it doesn't go very far then. It, and that's the same concept, right? The Nivis, look at a mirror. Look at it in the mirror in the bathroom and shining your little flashlight. If you're very close to the mirror at a very low angle, the reflection goes way off in the never never land. At 90 degrees, it comes right back at you. And anywhere in between, you can almost you can almost gear your distance, right? Mm -hmm. If in the flashlight situation, depending on what angle you hit the mirror, you can almost the reflection pointed at wherever you want. Kind of directionality with reflection. Right. And Nivis is sort of that principle. We use it here a lot. Uh, where it comes in very handy is we're over the hill, and you could say, well, why can't you just put up a repeater? Well, you, you could. But let's say the repeater goes down. Or in our case, it's the, we've got these mountains with um, the ocean and then with the Silicon Valley. It's a pretty good hill. And uh, you can have a repeater up there, but we probably only have – Oh, maybe less than 10, less than 10 repeaters on that hill between the coast and the Silicon Valley. Well, they figure during a disaster, you need more channels than that. During a major disaster, some of the repeaters will go down. Um, you'll just need more traffic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't know. Probably I heard about this 10, 15 years ago. Say, well, let's start doing some Nivis work, non-vertical incident skyway work. The same concept of if you put the antenna low on the ground, and, you know, some people say six inches, uh, I don't know, six inches, a few feet, you know, not not at the half wavelength point, but, you know, five feet, six feet. You're at this point. What happens then is the wave, instead of going out on the horizon, in the horizon you want, you get good DX, mm -hmm. because it's going out very horizontally, hits the atmosphere, reflects back down. But by the time it reflects back down, that's thousands of miles out, at least hundreds, hundreds if not thousands. On 20 meters, it would be thousands. And that's not what you want, right? We just want to talk across the hill. Yeah. So some folks says, well, why don't we lower the antennas instead of having it at a half wavelength above ground? We'll just put it a tenth, like a tenth of a wavelength, hmm. even less, a twentieth of a wavelength. What happens then? Well, what happens then is the – wave that you radiate hits the ground, reflects back vertically up into the clouds, 
maybe not 90 degrees, but certainly close to it, it reflects right back. And therefore, you can talk to the other side of the hill. So, so that's the fundamental principles behind it. Does it work? It does work. Are there losses? Yeah, yeah, there's losses. Of course, there's losses. You're really- when you have your antenna, oh, let's say five feet above ground, and you'll hear people say five inches. I experiment. Five feet is fine because it's much less than a half wavelength. Um, it goes down to the ground. Some of it goes up in the sky, but it isn't high enough to go horizontal. So it goes up in the sky. Some of it goes into the ground. Some of it gets absorbed. Some of it gets reflected back up. But it's going to hit the sky Again, maybe not at 90 degrees, but close to it, mm-hmm. close to it, and it'll reflect right back down. And so what we find for that is over the other side of the hill, a few hundred miles of communication, pretty reliable. The military actually experimented with this 20, 30 years ago, and they were quite successful. So it's really – we're mimicking what the military has done, and it does work pretty reliably. Again, I'm sure you lose – half the signal you know, in the ground but again there's enough left there's plenty left for close range communication so that's the principles behind it so it, it does take a horizontal antenna it does take a like we'll just say a dipole to make it easy it mm-hmm. takes a mm-hmm. it takes a dipole antenna takes it uh, lower to the ground maybe even a trip hazard if you will but it it gives you that vertical propagation versus the out toward the horizon type um, now, I've heard a lot of people say that it, you run at least 100 watts, 100 watts to complete a good Nivis conversation. Uh, it's really not something I think that works well on QRP, right? I mean, it takes some power to send it up and bring it right back down. Yeah, that's because a lot of it gets lost, right? The right. problem is it's so close to the ground, especially if it's dirt. Mm. Uh, a lot of that signal will go in the dirt and get lost. So, yeah, I would say you're right, 100 watts. It will work with QRP, but I think most stations like Red Cross, FEMA, they've got 100-watt stations, mm-hmm. so they've got it good enough. And yeah, I I would say, again, the way I've experimented with these, I've never had it like six inches above the ground. It's much higher. You know, at least the height of a human being, five, six feet. Okay. This way you don't trip over it. Because that is not high enough to get horizontal radiation. You know, you need like quarter to half wavelength to get good DX on a horizontal plane. So five, six feet. Uh, I mean, you hear different opinions about it. The problem with putting it down on uh, five or six inches, you'll need little stands mm. because it's like a 40-meter dipole, 66 feet. You'll need to have to make sure it all stays off the ground. Right. And just falling six inches will touch the ground. And then the other thing, uh, I think one of the more important surprising things, it shortens the antenna by quite a bit. Oh, when it's so, down when it's down that low, it it shortens yes, in. Okay, quite a bit. So normally you think of a forty meter dipole as sixty six feet. Oh, this will shorten it by a lot. Really? We're down to sixty feet, fifty eight feet. Wow. That's because of the velocity factor. Um, the closer you are to ground, you know, if you've experimented with antennas, the closer you are to objects. You ever notice that the resonant frequency goes down? Mm-hmm. That's because it's the capacitance you're forming. With, you know, an antenna is a resonant circuit. So what happens when you add capacitance to it? It lowers the resonant frequency. So if the antenna were sitting up in the air half wavelength, it's far enough from the ground where the capacitance coupling to the ground is not negligible but very small. Right. But as you lower that antenna, either 
or bring the antenna close to a building, but especially towards ground, mm -hmm. you're putting more and more capacitance to the resonant circuit. So resonant circuit is, you know, one over two pi the square root of LC. So if you raise the capacitance, you lower the resonant frequency. You know, I've heard so a lot. One I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so one thing you'll notice, you know, with your SWR analyzer, as the antenna gets close to ground, oh, it's good. You got to do these with an analyzer because it goes all over the place. <laughs> yeah, you don't know where you're at after a while. Right. But with, with the analyzer, the good thing is um, you'll see, ah, oh, I see it's dropping, it's dropping. So you have to trim it. And, and that's the problem with Nivis antennas. Um, you can't make a general one. In other words, if you make an antenna here in Sunnyvale and I send it to you, uh, I have to almost tell you the exact conditions. You know, it was all six feet, ten feet, because the surroundings become such a large factor. Um, in a dipole, you know, you're hanging it up, you know, it's 30, 40 feet. Right. It does, the difference between you back east and here would be minor. You could hang it up 30 feet, you hang it up 40 feet, it won't yeah. change it much because yeah. the capacity is so small. But you start putting it close to the ground, then uh, the variations would be quite a bit. Yeah, my dirt's different than your dirt. Right, right, my, my, right. Right now, my moisture is far less than your moisture, and it all affects it. That's you know, I, I never had thought about that, Ed, but but that uh, that's a, a really good case for having an, an antenna analyzer to help you get oh, these things right. Absolutely, and that's the other reason why I don't like it six inches off the ground. Mm -hmm. When it rains, your SWR changes. <laughs> it's, it's too close to the ground. So, so I, I like again. I think you still get the effect. Mm -hmm. Five or six feet, but I think the the moisture of the ground then plays less in the fat. So if ideally, ideally, if we're going to go out here to put up an antenna for Nivis, we we set our dipole at least at our head height, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, whatever yeah, we're kind of yeah. comfortable I, I think with. It's easier. It's easier if you did that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Hi, Dan KB6NU here. Whether you're studying for your tech license or looking to upgrade to general or extra, you should check out my no-nonsense amateur radio license study guides. Written in my easy-to-understand, no-nonsense style, they really are the easiest way to learn what you need to know to pass the test. And they are always up to date. The PDF version of the Technician Class Study Guide is free on my website at kb6nu.com podcast. And all my study guides are available in print, PDF, Kindle, and EPUB versions. Let me help you have more fun with ham radio. Go to kb6nu.com slash podcast and get started today. You, you know, Ed, it seems to me uh, after our, our initial conversation there, it's almost kind of like the, uh, the CW or uh, the digital modes where you maybe packet radio kind of makes you scratch your head when you're first coming into these things. And Nivis apparently is, is kind of the same way because it's not that it's really overly complicated. It's actually very simple. It's just a practical application of physics. Right, right, exactly. And the other thing you'll notice with on Nivis antennas, you'll think your receiver isn't working. <laughs> you know, the, because you don't hear all the horizontal noise. Really quiet. Typically, mm -hmm. it's very quiet, except for vertical waves coming back down at you. Right. And there's not that many vertical waves coming back down unless there's one that's 50 miles away and it's reflecting back down. So I think the military first notices, wow, the noise levels go down quite a bit. They do. Because you're not picking up a lot of other garbage right. that's not aimed at you. So probably 
four to six dB less noise. Mm. That's acceptable. <laughs> yeah, and they that's why the military really liked it. Lower noise, and again, if you keep your uh, conversations, you know, a couple hundred miles, you're in pretty good shape. Now, it's it's been my understanding that 80 and 40 are best for Nevis communications. 20 is too high in the band. Maybe 160 is too low. But I, I'm thinking maybe 40, 80 are the sweet spot. Is that is that a good understanding? Yeah, I've never done 80. I've always done 40. Okay. okay. 40 seems to work really well. Excellent. I've had yeah, some, I don't know I've had I, a little luck with 80, but 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 you're right. I've had more luck with 40. Yeah, yeah. The military uses 40 a lot. And, you know, 20, I wonder what happens in 20. Is it the absorption or something? Oh, yeah, it probably has something to do with the reflection. Okay. It's the angle of reflection. Yeah, it gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah, it's the angle. Yeah, I would say, for me, 40 has worked the best. Okay. And I've right. never tried 80 because no one else does 80. <laughs> That's a pretty big antenna to be hanging out, you know. Six feet off the ground. Well, that's true. You, you know, I, I take a lot of that for granted. That's a very good point you make. I mean, I live down on a farm with thirty-three acres and trees everywhere, so I've got, oh, you got no problem. Yeah, there's no problem. And and I, you know, I don't stop to think about folks that live in metropolitan areas. I just throw an eighty-meter dipole up. Are you kidding? Are they in their biggest no, dreams? Could they do that? You know. Yeah, my my lot. The longest part of my lot is only one hundred and ten feet. God. It's 110 by, what, 66 or something like that. Oh, my gosh. So I try to stuff all my antennas or, or just be real good friends with your neighbor. Yeah. So, hey, can I hang this wire over your tree? <laughs> That's really important. So now with, with your operating, do you spend much time uh, on HF and doing these type of Nivis activities with, with your local friends out there in California? No, I actually, to tell you the truth, I don't have that much time to operate. <laughs> I've, I've got, let's see, I've got 11 master students this year. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, so we got a lot of research we do. Right. Um, I'll, like, this, it was sweepstakes over the weekend. I'll operate sweepstakes. Yeah. Excellent. Operate field day. Uh, I'll listen to a few of the nets around here, but I don't, actually don't operate that much. Yeah. Well, to tell you it, the truth. It, it happens. You know, uh, my hobby is now inside the middle of the hobby. The podcasting hobby is my part of the amateur radio yeah, hobby. Yeah, yeah, that's part part. Of your end, right, yeah exactly. Right. Oh, to, if you rephrase the question, how often am I working on antennas? Oh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> but, but that's what I get grants for. Some are ham, commercial, whatever. Right. Oh, yeah, we're doing that all the time. But in terms of getting on the air, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, I used to call CQ and listen around at night for DX. And I'll listen around before I go to bed. No, I, I do more listening than talking for sure. Mm, okay. So I'll listen for DX. Uh, if I haven't worked a particular country, if I hear them, yeah, yeah I'll get back to them. Um, but, you know, at my age, you know, I've worked just about all the countries I'm going to work. <laughs> it's very, you know, unless one comes on an island or something right. temporarily. Uh, in terms of all the standard countries, it's rare that I'll hear a new one on. Right. It's new little islands that are temporarily on, you know, uh, sponsored by the ARRL or something like that. You know, it's, it's funny how when, when you say that to someone, they – maybe a, a new ham they don't really kind of get it but this hobby is so broad i mean there are people who they just d completely involve themselves in antenna construction and theory oh, and yeah. study well, you know it's, it's not just talking on the radio all the time oh no 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 i mean my daughter is an electrical engineer and she never she, the only person she talks to is me <laughs> on the field day but yet she's very involved I mean, She'll do op amps for you, antenna matching, and you know, all the math involved and all that. Right. But, yeah, I mean, it's probably a very small percentage that actually talk. 
in the hobby. VHF, yes, because you talk to your friends. Yeah, yeah. In a DX contest, yes. But you, li- you listen on the air, you know, on a typical non-contest weekend, let's say non-net. I listen to the nets on weekends, mm-hmm. the swap nets and all that on 40 meters. But do I get on? No, nah, there's enough people on. Yeah. But you're right. Uh, in fact, if I went into my next room now and tuned around on 20 meters, sweepstakes is gone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, propagation is there. Yeah. Because on sweepstakes, were you on this weekend? I actually made two contacts. <laughs> it was packed. It was. It was crazy. It was packed, man. Yeah. Oh, the 20 meters. And I have a suspicion that 20 meters is kind of always open that way. Mm-hmm. But in a typical weekend non-contest, it's pretty quiet. Yeah. Yeah. That's because, like what you said, most people don't – once they get their license, yeah, they try out their radios and all that stuff. A contest they'll get on. Uh, they have to talk to a friend, a net or something. But it isn't as common anymore when I was growing up where you call CQ and just talk to folks. Right. I think you want to do that. You go on the internet. <laughs> you pick up your cell phone. Means, yeah. 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 You have another means. To, when we are growing up, that's a little bit different 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but now, yeah uh, – Again, I think on weekends when there's no contest, it's not that the band's dead. People have other things. Yeah. But they are do certainly have other interests. Oh yeah. Yeah. In the, the, computer, ho- in FM, the yeah. this DMR thing, everything's everyone's going DMR and oh, there's a lot of stuff they do. Yeah. But it's not necessarily uh, just talking at people at random. Right. Yeah, and you know, to me it kinda seems like personally that kinda comes and goes. You know, it's like an ebb and flow of life. I'll I'll be real involved and, and really trying to get on the air to make some contacts and I kinda get that kind of filled up and then I'll I may not turn the HF rig on for a while and then I'll be like, Well, I haven't been on HF in a while and it kinda draws you back and you're there for a few days and you know, I, I have friends that stay on the air virtually all the time. And uh, yeah, but they're, but they're talking with other friends, or are they talking at random, calling CQ? They're well, a lot of them are chasing national parks right now. I don't know what they're well, going to do are, come in are, January. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. Like like this weekend, a lot of folks run because of those uh, sweepstakes. The sweepstakes, yeah. It, you know, and I'll tell you what I what I ran into. I was trying to to uh, to show a friend of mine all about ham ham radio and. We'd, I was just wanted to kind of make a contact to let him see how this thing worked, you know, the shortwave <laughs> HF stuff. And I couldn't find a non-contest station to contact. So I had yeah. to jump into the contest just to make to you know make some contacts. That's right. Thankfully, right, right, the guys right. were the guys were very uh, they were very understanding and they let me just kind of get in and get out, which was great. And I really both of them were November five calls out of Texas and really appreciated it. Um, and and my friend's eyes just were lit up. You know, he was so excited to see it really happen at his house with the antenna set up on his back porch. It was really cool. But you're right, man. The contest bring them out. And uh, yep, you know, another yep. thing that I found really lights up the airwaves are these disasters that we have, whether it's a hurricane, earthquake, uh, tsunamis, and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems yeah. to bring people out as well. So what it says is when there's a purpose, they get on. Right. But I don't think it's as common 20, 30, 30 years ago when I was in high school. I had no purpose. I would go home, yeah, 20, 40 meters, tune around and start talking with folks I've never seen, never talked to, probably will never talk to again, never meet. But that's kind of what we did. But that's what the Internet does today. Yeah, yeah. You do meet a lot of people that you don't know. They're in your group because they're friends of friends, and you, know, you, you text them. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's sort of taken that over. Right. But certainly there's a lot of folks around with HF. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's still just, plenty again, to be heard. Oh, yeah. But I think VHF, UHF is the really the growing factor, mainly uh, emergency services. Mm. Oh, that's grown a lot. Yeah. Right. And you see most people that get their licenses, not all, but a lot. 
uh, get it because they, they get introduced to it from emergency services. Well, this is this, and this is a good compliment to that as well. You know, maybe somebody's out there listening to us, and they're just a technician right now, and they're trying to decide if they want to do anything with HF or or whatnot because they only got into it to be a member of the CERT Club or they they wanted to participate with the Red Cross. But th- this near vertical instant Skywave will give you the opportunity to to be able to communicate in those types of emergencies with HF and more. Yes. 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 That's true. That's so, true. So yeah. there's there's a there, there's a good practical application we can talk about. It's a very good one. Yes. <laughs> Again, that's what the Red Cross determined that you, you wouldn't be able to set up repeaters quick enough mm-hmm. if you need you know typically in a disaster you need half a dozen repeaters going around mm. and if half of the ones you have fail you can't set them up quick enough. Uh, Nivis is a good good alternative. Somebody so could that's, just that's good. Yeah, to have they, your HF rigs ready. They just grab their HF rig and their portable dipole and, and yep. pull it down to the ground and get talking. Yep, yep. Just hang it up. In other words, the great thing is you don't have to hang it up high anymore. Just get it off the ground. can't touch the ground because you'll kill the signal. But no, I, I, I like, again, five or six feet. Mm-hmm. You hear other people, what, 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 have you, what have you heard, five or six inches? Well, you know, I've heard typically about head height. Right at yes. you know, right at That's above right. or below head height, and I yep, and yep. I'm five foot eleven inches. I'm not really a tall yep. guy. So five to six feet is just optimal because again, at forty meters, the the wire's going to droop. If you had a six inches, you need little stands all yeah. over the place. Well, you know what was funny, Ed? When I first got started, I really wanted to be able to use near vertical instant skywave. That's kind of why I got my general license. So I said, if you know, I can talk up the east coast and down the east coast, I'm good. So I, I put up a, just a random wire about 103 feet long, about 8 feet off the ground, and I could talk all up and down the coast is exactly what I wanted to do. And then one day I actually got a JA station. I don't know how that happened with this completely oh, yeah, random. Oh, where you're at. That's yeah. really hard to do. <laughs> it was amazing. And then it wasn't too far after that I heard someone on, on 40 meters on AM and I actually made a 40-meter AM contact with this same antenna and well, that's got to be rare 40 meter am and, and the guy was in arizona and it was it was just, it was it was just one of those he couldn't believe it i couldn't believe it and it lasted for just long enough to say hey wow cannot believe this is happening and there it went but i took it you know what radio do you have that goes on am that was my um kenwood ts50 oh that goes on am okay. mm-hmm. yep, yeah, AM, yeah yeah, yeah, my yeah. My, uh, my transceivers are all vintage 1990 rigs, so <laughs> we, we finished school about the same time my rigs and I did. So <laughs> oh, really? Okay, cool. I'm still working well, on I some still later have, model rigs. I, I've still old Collins S-Line equipment. Wow, wow. Still working. That stuff works great. <laughs> and it looks pretty, too. Yeah, it looks like real ham radio. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there's there's the, the, the old dials and the knobs and the, the yep, old, yeah. old analog meters are all beautiful. Love to People watch those come, They come over and are, and she's, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> well, we're going to continue on here with Ed here in just a second on the Ham Radio 360 podcast. We're going to be talking some of Ed's antenna designs, so stick around. We'll be right back. I'm not going to try to get through a show without talking about the fact that we've sold out of the first run of the antenna analyzer build kits. Now, I don't want to discourage you by telling you that. Actually, that's kind of encouraging. And the reason why it's encouraging is now you have time, even more time to wait on those things that you need to come from China in the slow boat. So listen, we're, we're going to place another order. We're going to have them for you around Christmas time, maybe the week after. But as soon as we can get them to you, we'll put them back on the store, back in the store, rather, back online for sale. 
and we'll get them to you. Okay. We, we sold out in less than 19 hours. George could not, he thought I was kidding. George really thought I was kidding. So don't despair. It's all there. Just listen to the show. Watch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. We're there, and we'll do our best to keep our forums updated as well. A lot of information coming in now about the build and whatnot, so keep your eyes peeled online. If you ever have any questions about what's going on, hamradio360.com, that's the place to go. We'll have boards in about four-plus weeks from now, and we'll have them back online for sale. All right, it's best I can do. We've got other stuff in the store as well, by the way. But uh, thank you for all of you who have gotten your boards ordered. We're getting them in the mail to you as soon as possible. And the second run is on the way. How's that? Best we can do right now, but it's going to be a great project. And look forward to seeing what you're going to do with your antennalizer. Antennalizer. That was funny. Your antenna. An- Did I just create a word? Antenna Analyzer Project Board from hamradio360.com. Okay, so we're back with Ed Fong. His call is Whiskey Bravo 6, India, Quebec, November. You may have heard me speak of Ed before, or maybe even seen some postings on our blog where we mention Ed's J-Pole antennas that uh, his students make there in class. And uh, Ed, again, thank you for being here with us. And we're really excited to have learned about Nivis and kind of gotten a better grip on that. But I want to talk about your antennas and your antenna designs. Mainly, well, let's start with your dual band J-pole antenna that you actually put inside a piece of PVC pipe. Where did this design come from? Uh, That design originally, the single band version of it, I had seen in the early 1990s. Denny Monticelli, AE6C, showed it to me. In fact, it wasn't in a PVC pipe. It was on twin lead. Okay. And I said, well, that's pretty clever, the way it works. And I started, well, when I tried one, I said, these things work pretty well. So I started exploring it and saying, what what, what makes these work so well? And, you know, for various reasons they do. And then eventually people started asking me, hey, can you make this thing dual band? Because it resonates at UHF, because most antennas, and I think most folks know this, if you take a fundamental antenna, it will typically resonate at its odd harmonics. So an antenna at 100 megahertz will also take a dip if you had an SWR meter at 300, at 500, mm. uh, at 700, etc. So most folks that notice, hey, you get a two meter, any two meter antenna, not just a J-pole. It will have a reasonable SWR at UHF. But what they notice is it didn't work very well. Okay. Because the radiation pattern, it's a three-quarter wave antenna at that point. Mm. And um, what happens is the radiation goes into the sky, not in a horizontal plane. If you simulate it like an easy neck or any of the antenna simulators. So my task there in the 1990s was uh, saying, gee, this, this is by the mid, oh, late 90s. So there must be a cool way of converting one of these to make a true dual band. And I thought about it on and off, and, and that resulted in the DBJ-1, which is a dual band uh, version of a J-pole. And a lot of copycats out there. A lot of folks have tried to copy it. Mm. A lot of folks do it wrong. It's, it's pretty finicky. And, we, and the way we make it is we order all our materials special from JSC wiring and from Maya cables. It turns out that the, the twin lead uh, it's all special ordered now because you just can't make it anymore or, or not make but obtain it. Right. Uh, JSC will custom make it for us to our specifications. Now it's more designed for trans- transmitting. And it's ladder line. It's actually 300-ohm ladder line. Uh, we found 
you know, at the university, I get a lot of resources, especially students looking for master's projects. Mm -hmm. So over the years, we've just fine tweaked this and we determined we just got to order the material. Don't try to find it. Uh, find a good manufacturer. And we found JSC wiring. They're willing to at um, 10,000 feet or more, they can tool up for you. Wow. And yeah, we go through, we go through 10,000 feet in no time. Um, you know, over, over the years, we've sold now, how many? About 17,000. Wow. <laughs> it's about 17,000. And a lot of it is to actually government and commercial, not ham. Hmm. About half and half. A lot of police and fire places use it. Um, Department of Forestry uses it. So it's pretty common. Uh, so again, we use enough of it so that we can just spec the twin lead, which is really a ladder line these days, 300 ohm ladder line, and they'll make it. Mm -hmm. And you know, still relatively inexpensive. Just you just have to order 10,000 feet. Right. So that's that's the story behind it. And then we published an article in 2003 in QST, and that's made it very popular. It's in the antenna handbook. Um, it's in the compendiums, and yeah, it's just pr um, pretty widely used now. Um, but what I recommend to folks, you know, some folks look at the original article and say, oh, we've been trying to build it and we can't build it, it won't resonate. And, yeah, it's really tough. If you're just getting random uh, material that you buy at swap meets, that's really tough to do mm -hmm. because of the velocity factors. Okay. And every little twin lead has slightly different velocity factors. You need a really good network analyzer to analyze it to find exact dimensions. So I tell them what I could do is I can send that I could buy one ready built doesn't cost very much. It's like twenty nine dollars if you buy them in onesies, uh, or else I can just send you the materials. If you know if you have a hard time finding like the twin leak materials, uh, we can just send it to you at our, at our cost. Wow. So that's so, so they're pretty popular. Um, and then one of my students uh, later on said, "We got to make a roll up version of this," <laughs> and that's the DBJ two, where we have a roll up version. That was hard to figure out how, how to get it all in one piece. Um, but he did his master's on that one. And then he also suggested, hey, you know, this is a roll-up portable. What do people need? They need adapters for BNC, SMA, SMA female for the Baofengs, and even a um, six-feet extension cable. So now we offer it as a kit, as a complete kit, and that's $28. Pr pretty reasonable. We make a few dollars on it, and yet it's still a good value for the, the customer. Um it's, it comes in a little pouch, and well, people love it. Uh, what else could I say about it? Oh, and the interesting thing is people say, how did you get that extension cable, the six-feet RG174 extension cable? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a custom order. Um, people say, is it lossy? Well, of course it's got loss. <laughs> but it's made of a special RG174 that this manufacturer sent us. This, this is a special RG174. It is. Nice. Um, low loss. It's comparable loss to RG58, but much thinner, mm -hmm. easier to backpack. Okay. And so I, they sent me a sample. It's very interesting when you cut it up and see, that, well, what's so different about this that other people don't have? The shield, you know, most of the losses in cable comes in the dielectric and the shield. Because the shield is really, really rough, like it's braided, mm -hmm. it would have a little bit more loss. It makes sense, right? If you were to shove water through something that's rough as opposed to shoving water through something that's smooth, yeah. something smooth has lower loss. Like friction so loss. It, right. It's just friction loss. RF is very similar. Um, so what they did when I cut this up, it's made of a very, very shiny copper that's non-braided. Hmm. 
Because hmm. if you braid it, you think about it, if you braid it at VHF, UHF, it's going to have higher loss because mm-hmm. it's a little rougher. So they have this interesting way, and I don't know how they do it. The cop, the, the shield is really shiny copper, which is probably good, smooth. Yeah. And it is not woven. But it, it covers very well the way they have it. It's it's an interesting way they do it, but it's co- the coverage is very, very good. And sure enough, when we put it on a network analyzer, yeah, it its loss is comparable to RG58, you know, just three, four times wider in diameter. <laughs> you know what? I'm sitting here thinking about this, and we have a lot of people who are listening and and they come in new to the hobby and they pick up a you know a cheaper handy talkie, and uh, they're like I, I want some more performance out of this. This is a perfect answer for that. Th- yeah. This is a perfect answer for that. Absolute four probably six to ten dBs. We did a test on it. In fact, of rubber ducks, all types of rubber ducks you could put on your handy talkie. Uh, we did this one of our club um, afternoon activities, and sure enough, when you get a roll up J pole like ours. It was a good six to ten dBs higher, and that is significant. That makes a big difference with a handy talkie, folks. Big. People will notice. Wow! All of a sudden, that scratchy repeater comes in. You know, S nine. Yeah, yeah, it makes a big, big difference. Um, but you know, let me talk some, uh, something else that parallels this. Sure. Is RG eight X. So you're familiar with that, Kale? RG eight X. Oh yeah. I get, actually I get a, a really hard time for some friends of mine because I like to use it because of my limited income. <laughs> and oh, you've got to buy X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, well, for what I'm doing, this is okay. But but tell yes. us, educate us on it. Give us give us yeah. some good word on so, it. So RG eight X. Its purpose. Uh, it was probably introduced uh, probably 15 years ago now, maybe more. 15. Uh, its major purpose was this: to coax manufacturers had RG58, certainly. And RG58 mainly was designed for HF, great for CB, 10 meters, 20 meters, etc. Fairly low loss for those frequencies. But as you go up, VHF, UHF, 220, uh, RG58 doesn't hold up as well. Its losses become uh, pretty insurmountable at UHF. If you ever use 50 feet of RG58 at UHF, oh, it's terrible, very <laughs> noticeable. So back 20 years ago, what would you do? You just RG, good versions of RG8, uh, you know, versions like LMR uh, 400, 9913 by Belden. Mm-hmm. Those are, uh, was the standard 20, 30 years ago if you want to run long runs on UHF. You couldn't run RG58. The losses were too great. So there was a large demand to ask the coax manufacturers, is there any way you can make – because as you know, when you start running 9913 and LMR14, that's almost half inch in diameter. Oh, yeah. Is it low loss? Yeah. But it's expensive and it's hard to work with. Mm-hmm. So not only just hams or commercial folks, ask the coax folks. We would love a transmission line. They wanted everything. Low cost, low loss. And easy to work with. And you say, wow, that's asking a lot. <laughs> well, they couldn't make it zero cost, but they came up with uh, RG8X. And what what is the difference between RG8X and RG50? It is a little wider, but not much. Mm-hmm. Pretty flexible. In fact, very flexible for what it is. And if you find it on the internet, $25 for 50 feet with PL259 connectors – like what you say, Kale, it's a bargain, right? It is a bargain. Compared to LMR 400 or 9913, that's a bargain. Oh, yeah. And it's easy to work with. And what I found is if you keep it under 50 feet, 
it's pretty acceptable for UHF. Keep it under 50 feet. Now, where's the main disadvantage? Let me tell you the main disadvantage is really, really important because I've got a 50 feet of RG8X sitting in my ham shack, and I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> Why? Because I cut it. Mm. If you look at RG8X, they use the same principle that I just described to you in that low-loss RG174. What is it? It's the shielding. Yes. So you've cut one open, Kale? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can't solder onto it, can you? No, it's tough. <laughs> Pretty tough. It's a foil. Again, it's a conductive foil. Mm-hmm. Again, a conductive foil, the losses is going to be much lower than the braided shield, especially as you go up in frequency like UHF. So that was their solution. That inner conductor, if you cut open RG8X, it's a mylar conductive foil. And then it, it's, it's, it's not a Teflon insulation. It's a version at lower cost mm-hmm. the insulation. Um, but it's got you know at least half the loss of 58, probably more than that. I forgot the exact, forget the exact specs, but it's, it's very usable at UHF. Up to 50 feet. Up to 50 feet. And that's the key. You, you, you know, folks, will, oh, I can just run 150 feet out here to get it to a tree or something. But no, it, you need to have it no more than 50 feet. Yeah, you'll notice it. I mean, at 50 feet, you'll, you'll probably in a handy talkie listening to a weak repeater say, yeah, there's a little bit of loss. But again, typically you can get your antenna in a much higher location. Mm-hmm. So it's a big trade-off, right? For 50 feet, can, can I within 50 feet get that antenna out in the clear? If you can, it's worth it. Yeah, if you can't, it probably isn't. Or, or let's rephrase it. At some point, let's say you add fifty feet and you tie another fifty feet together, you've doubled the losses for sure. The question is, can you you get that antenna high enough in the clear, or you've doubled the gain because of the location of the antenna? Mm. To negate to about. negate the loss of the cable itself. Right, right. But you know what I find? Fifty feet is about the limit. Okay. Okay. I was just going to say, I want to come back. I want to talk to you about your uh, your new antenna design that you've been working on. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. From single band handy talkies all the way up to flagship radios like the TS-990. Hey, let's not forget the tri-band handy talkie with APRS and D-Star. That's right. Kenwood gear from top to bottom. Got you covered. And you can find it all at Maine Trading Company, mtcradio.com. Let Richard, Christine, Danielle, Tammy, Chris help you find the best deal. They, they've got it. You just have to call them. I know you shop other places. Give them a chance. You need something. It's Christmas time. They have sales going on. Call them. It's Main Trading Company, mtcradio.com. Oh, a couple of, probably three, four years ago, um, FEMA kept on bugging me. They used a lot of our dual band antennas. Because they were pretty inexpensive, and they use a lot of these FEMAs. They load up their trucks with it, and they just couldn't spend, you know, uh, on like a Comet uh, GP3 or an X50 or an X200. They were too expensive if they were buying a lot. Mm-hmm. So they were using a lot of my antennas, but they were also buying uh, 220 antennas because 220 they do a lot of the packet on 220 because 220 doesn't interfere with two meters or UHF. So as a general rule, Pat, um, they like to do all their packet on 220 so they can still do phone traffic on VHF 2 meters and UHF. Because what happens is when, when you transmit packet like on 2 meters and the station right next to, to, to the operator is uh, trying to listen to some handy talkie 10 miles out <laughs> on 146.52, 
as soon as that packet transmits on that band, it just clobbers it. Mm. So their simple solution was to just organize things. Let's put packet on 220 and still have our voice on two meters and UHF. But then they needed extra antennas. Mm. And that's not what they wanted. You know, they just they really like to simplify their communications because they have so many other things to worry about. You know, despite what hams think, the FEMA is a radio, cool play radio group. It is. It's a disaster recovery. <laughs> what happened was um, they wanted an antenna. They went on 220. They asked me, is there any way you can add 220 to your DBJ1 base? We would love that. Well, it turns out that's more difficult than you might think because 220 is not harmonically related to two meters or UHF. So you can't just use the same components, the resonant components. You know, for example, in our DBJ1, the actual matching, the two meter matching is actually also used in the UHF matching, not in the radiation, but in the matching. Well, you can't quite do that on 220. So they asked me, is there any way you can do it? And I thought for, oh, on and off for two years at least, <laughs> thinking at night, is there any way you can do it? Well, we did. We did come up with a very clever way. Um, the article is going to come out in QST in either January or February. They haven't told us yet. And we'll just uh, tell you the secrets of how it's done. Uh, it's, it's hard to explain unless you read the article. Mm -hmm. It's based on Maxwell's equation, something totally new of how we added in 220 into this DBJ1. No radials. It did add um, about a foot to the height. So from five feet to six feet, you add you add two twenty, and all three bands is a half wavelength radiation. So you'll see it. Um, it'll be in either January or February QST. If you're interested, the guys can email me. I can. I think I'm allowed to send out the manuscript. <laughs> it's just that I, I don't want to. I, I think the AWRL has the rights for the official announcement of that antenna. But that we tried, we, we worked on that. Uh, I worked on that problem on and off for a good two years to see whether you have still no radials, good half-wave performance, all in um, one antenna. And it slides in a PVC pipe that's virtually indestructible. Virtually indestructible, that's right. That's right. Before I let you go, I want to ask you just a real quick question, and mm -hmm. you don't have to get deep in theory here, but just to help answer a question that I've been asked. Uh, a new ham comes in and he says, I need a new antenna. And of course we say, well, you should try the, the Ed Fong J pole. And then someone else comes and says, no, you'll be better off with a quarter wave on two, on two meters. Um, I've, I've found personally that I like the J pole antenna design just because it's sleeker and there's less to poke my eye with. Uh, is there one, one that's better than the other, uh, regarding performance? I mean, everybody's gonna have their opinion, of course, but coming in for a new guy, uh, to put something in his attic or out on his chimney to get on his sure. local network. Is there a big, big difference between a quarter wave? If, if you do a simulation, and we've done tests on this, uh, I don't know if you ever noticed this, K.O., that um, on a half wave, like a DBJ1 vertical, mm -hmm. that it tends to perform better than a ground plane. Okay. Have you ever noticed that? Well, I've noticed that mine is an excellent performer. So <laughs> Yeah, it's about 1.6 dB better. Okay. The reason why is very simple explanation, non-mathematical. Uh, in the old days, we used to make ground plane antennas. I made them when I was a teenager. They have good SWR. I, I didn't understand antennas very well. The only meter I had to measure the performance of my antenna was an SWR meter. Mm -hmm. So both antennas would give you good SWR. But here, here's what the difference is. Sure, a ground plane has radials. 
It has radials, but it's also much shorter, right? It's only a quarter wave tall. Right. So if you're worried about height, and you're very limited in height, the ground plane, not a bad idea. Good example of that is a, a car antenna right on top of your roof mm-hmm. on a car. That's a quarter wave whip. Does it work? Sure. A J-pole version of that would be three times taller because it's a half-wave radiator and a quarter-wave matching stuff. That's quite a bit taller in your car. <laughs> in your house, it might not make a difference. Yeah. So here's a difference in performance and, you know, without all the math. In a ground plane, what pulls down the wave – again, when you start out transmitting, you only have so much power. We, we can never create power out of nothing. Mm-hmm. If we did, if I knew how, I would be a multimillionaire because <laughs> I've created energy. The only thing you can really do is, is direct the energy. You can redirect it. And in antennas, what we typically do in omnidirectional antennas is we try to flatten the radiation pattern. In other words, try to make it more like a flying saucer as opposed to a hemisphere, the radiation pattern. Because if it's a hemisphere, that means a lot of it's going up into the sky. And unless you're talking to a space shuttle or International Space Station, mm-hmm. you're wasting your energy. What you want to do with the given energy you have is flatten it and make it more like a flying saucer. Because then it doesn't go up in the sky, but that same energy spreads out and goes out further. Well, in a ground plane, what pulls down the wave, in other words, trying to pull it away from radiating in the sky, is those radials. Mm. And the radials are typically you know, 90 degrees or 45 degrees at best. So that's what's pulling down the wave. Right. And you want it to pull it down because then it makes it more like a flying saucer pattern. Mm-hmm. In a half-wave vertical antenna like a J-pole, that's tall because it's, it's basically a vertical dipole. What do you have pulling down the wave now? It's 180 degrees. It's the other half of the antenna, the other quarter wave. You have a quarter wave vertical and you have a quarter wave going down so it's 180 degrees from your radiating element it pulls it much harder so instead of 90 degrees pulling it it's forced is much harder because it's 180 degrees below and what does that result in? it results in about one and a half db of gain wow which but, is that's, and that's what you want you want that flatter signal because you're trying to get to your local right. machines you're trying to get to to fellow operators who have vertical antennas and you need it to get flat not we're not talking near vertical here. We're talking about as flat as we can get it. Right. Trying to get that thing pancaked, that pattern, right. as opposed to talking to someone up in space. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, what, another major advantage I find when I do antenna consulting, why they like the J-pole. The J-pole is DC grounded. That's really important to most folks. See, a ground plane, when you think about it, its shield and its radiating element is a DC open. It's an open circuit at DC. So it makes it very vulnerable to lightning. Mm. Um, not lightning strikes. I tell people, not lightning strikes. You, if you can invent a way to prevent lightning strikes, again, you'll be a multimillionaire. <laughs> what it does prevent is this, and this is very helpful. During a lightning storm, um, the, electro, or the electrical uh, charge of the atmosphere can be very, very high, millions of volts. It may not induce that into the antenna, but even thousands, even hundreds of volts will burn out your front end of your radio, right? Oh, yeah. It'll burn it out. That's what happens during lightning storms. People with ground plane antennas blow out the front ends. That's why you need a lightning arrestor. 
you put a lightning arrestor online and it's a little vacuum tube that arcs when there's a high voltage. And then you don't get that discharge and get that high voltage into your front end. But if you look at how a J-pole is designed, a J-pole is a DC short. At DC, it's a short circuit. <laughs> Just by design. Right. It's by design. So you don't need to put a lightning arrestor onto a J-pole because it's DC grounded to the shield. Just ground your shield in. That's all you need to do. And most people have that in your power supply or whatever you hook on. It's grounded. Nice. So I think that's the major advantage. What, what I found with some of these um, – with, we do consulting with ATD alarms. They said it's a wonderful idea because in the past, they have been buying 20, about $22 lightning arrestors for every time they would put an antenna. And I said, no, just do it by design. But J-Pole is a good one. Wow. So in a J-Pole, you get 1.5 dB of gain, 1.5 to 1.6 dB of gain. You don't have the radio sticking out. Mm-hmm. Plus, you don't need a lightning arrestor. The main disadvantage is it's a three-quarter wavelength antenna. So it is quite a bit taller, yeah. but it gives you better performance. Um, but the fortunate thing is when you talk to folks, as long as you don't have radials, they don't like the radial thing. This makes it clumsy. Um, vertical, if you had to go in any direction, most folks don't mind going vertically. You know, another six inches, ten inches or whatever. It doesn't bother them. Yeah. So that's why overall these days, how often – I don't know how it is over back in your area, Kim. How often do you see ground plane antennas at VHF? I see verticals everywhere I look. No, ground plane antennas. Yeah, well. Not I, verticals. No, no, I don't see very many ground planes. You around. don't, none. But, but 40 years ago, you did. Yeah. Technology's kind of marches. A, a good example is go up to a repeater site. Boy, I tell you, slowly over the years, you just see vertical antennas without ground radios. Mm-hmm. They've designed around that. Number one, the, the J-Pole, and you tear a lot of these apart. A lot of them are J-Pole configurations. <laughs> um, they're DC grounded, like what I said, and they don't need radials. I tell you, on top of a hill, people have noticed this, you know, repeater folks especially. Ground plane radials are really killer after 10 years. They fall off. Um, their wind load is fairly large. Um Every I, rumor has it that they break off, especially at VH after longer. They break off of the wind, but they also break off because, um, you know, birds can't really sit on top of a vertical very well, but they can sit on top of radials. Mm-hmm. Yep. Over time. <laughs> over time. Uh, you know, now I think it's more common like in New York, you know, where you have a lot of pigeons. Ah. And you have an antenna up there. Right. And it's horizontal. They'll land on it. And over the years, you'll just break the radials off. Hmm. I've had Ringo Rangers and things like that radios. Yeah, eventually they break off. They eventually break off. So um, what the repeater folks have noticed, commercial police and fire, verticals without radials, um, you're better off going vertical high. So it's a trade-off. Typically, if the radial, let's say UHF is six inches, you either have three or four six-inch radials, or if you can design that out, typically in the math, it'll work out that it'll be six inches taller. And overall, what I've found is people are less bothersome with the six inches taller hmm. than the radials. So that's why now when you go up to a hill, most modern antennas don't have radials. And they perform just as well. It's just that they're taller. But most people don't notice it being taller. Yeah. It's small. You know, it's a small percentage. Yeah. Very good. Very good. So that's the answer to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, it makes sense I, to I, me. I'm not a ground plane. That's kind of an older technology. Yeah. You can two disadvantages. You get the radio sticking out, the durability, and they're not DC grounded. Mm. 
and you know, in in, in the uh, JPO, it's for free. The the lightning arrestor is built in. Yeah, yeah, for free. So why not? That's why they're so popular now. And this JPO thing is very popular. I'm not the only the only guy. But JPOs, the copper J, and all that. Oh, mm-hmm. there, there's tons of them around. Does that, it, that answer your question? Absolutely, it sure does. And and it was kind of what I was maybe thinking around some of the the outside aspects of it there. But it makes a great explanation. And, uh, you know, if you want to build a quarter wave, I don't want to discourage you from building anything. That's what this hobby is based upon. But but just like Ed was saying, the J-Pole design is is superior in, in other ways. So, Ed, thank harder you. To build, much harder to build. I think to get it going right, mm-hmm. make it dual band, very difficult. Uh, if you'd like to experiment, I think it's not unrealistic to get a single band one going. Yeah. It is much harder than a ground plane. You can get ground planes to resonate pretty easily. Right. Yeah. But and, see, in a J-Pole, it's, you've got a lot of little sections, a little tap, and you know. It's a little bit more intricate, but it's fun, and you can get most people can get it going. Yeah, yeah, and if they can't, they can can go right on eBay and, and purchase one of yours, which Kel has proven is a winner every time we put it up. So, Ed, thank you very much for coming on the or show. Or call me; they can always call me. I'm usually home most mornings. I usually have afternoon classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can always call me. I don't mind spending a few minutes and explaining things. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure we put all of your contact information in our show notes as well as a link to where they can purchase your products if they'd like to as well. And uh, again, Ed, thank you for coming on. It's been very educational for me especially, and I've gotten some questions answered. So when I'm asked the question next time, I feel better informed, and that's what we try to do every time here on the show. Okay, thank you very much. All right. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Again, special thank you to Ed Fong for coming on with us. Ed, great time. So much information there and, and really look forward to having him back on with us. Man, did you guys enjoy that or what? Yeah, Ed Fong is college Whiskey Bravo 6, India, Quebec, November. Ed's all over the internet. You can find his products on sale on eBay. We'll have links to that, of course, in the show notes and his, uh, his white papers as well so you can go and learn about his designs and help it make sense to you. And if you need an antenna, you need to roll up, you need one to go vertical in the house, Ed's got them, and I can attest that they're high quality, well-built, and their performance is out of sight. So thank you again, Ed. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you for listening. Thank you all for your support. Our patrons, our supporters who help keep the program going, the folks who bought out all of our boards in less than 19 hours, and the orders that go along with those regarding shirts and hats and stickers. Man, we just we got a lot of stuff to do here in this next week, so thank you all for your support. Again, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Christmas is on the way. The new Workbench show is in the can, and it's going to be a great one. So, guys, don't forget, we'll be back next week with George and Jeremy doing the Workbench show. But until then, God bless every one of you. Thank you so much for listening. 73, y'all. Thank you for listening to Ham Radio 360, brought to you by mtcradio.com. For more information about the program, visit hamradio360.com. Till next time. 73s, y'all.